Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, verse 15, excuse me, chapter 15, verses 25 through 32. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, ladies. So good morning. Uh, let me introduce myself quickly. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here <clears throat> Excuse me, at Redeemer City, and it's good to be with you this morning. We continue in a series we've been doing for a number of weeks in Luke 15, uh, focusing on this famous parable of the prodigal son, but really taking the, whole ch- the chapter as a whole. Uh, and so for a number of weeks, we've been looking at this because it's a story about being found, which, of course, means that it's also a story about being lost. And it's a story, as we've said, about different kinds of lostness. Both the boys in Jesus' parable are lost, but only one looks lost. Only one left home. The other stayed. This, this scene we just read, Gigi just read to us, he stayed. And so his lostness, though it is just as real, it's much harder to diagnose because his badness looks so good. But it is this figure of the older brother, the older son, that separates Christianity from all of the other religions of the world, from religion itself, In fact, without the elder brother in this story, there is no Christianity. Let me explain. The younger son, the one who rebelliously left home, when he came to his senses, you remember we saw this just a couple of weeks ago, his first thought was, I've really screwed up. I should be more like my older brother. And I admit for years reading this parable, I thought that was the point too. I completely missed it. I didn't see that the religion of this older brother was a deeper darkness even than the rebellion of his younger brother. John Gerstner said, the main thing between you and God is not your sins. It's your damnable good deeds. And I wish I had the courage to make that the title of the sermon that goes and plasters on our website and whatnot. I don't. Damnable good deeds. Because there's some shock value to that, isn't there? But here's what he means, and here's what I think this scripture teaches, that surely one of the lessons, anyway, is that sin cannot keep you out of heaven. Isn't that great news? I mean, that's what Christianity says. Sin can't keep you out of heaven, but self-righteousness can. And that's our topic this morning, because it's what we see in this boy. And just to put all my cards on the table for you, uh, this really is my story. After 25 years of Christianity and 10 years in gospel ministry, 
I was like this older boy, and I was around a lot of other people who acted like him too, and I thought that's what Christianity is, and I didn't realize that's not Christianity at all. It's something entirely different because fundamentally it's this posture of self-righteousness, which is the enemy of the gospel, not an expression of it. And so we want to see three things about self-righteousness as we talk about it together this morning. I want you to see the danger of it. I want you to see, secondly, the dynamics of it because we see both those things here. And then thirdly, we really are, I think, in a, in a, in a subtle way shown the death, the path to the death of the self-righteousness that's killing us. So the danger and the dynamics and the death of self-righteousness from uh, this text, this famous portrayal of this older brother here. So first, let's talk about the danger for just a minute. William Secker, who is a lesser-known Puritan, he wrote this. He says, many have passed the rocks of gross sin only to have suffered shipwreck on the sands of self-righteousness. The older brother is representative, we know, of the Pharisees and the scribes, if you look all the way back, if you have a Bible in front of you anyway, to verse 2 grumbling there that Jesus would dare to eat in association with the morally inferior people uh, than themselves. Uh, The conservative, moral, religious crowd, that's what this group of people are. In other words, all of us, you and me, because we're here on a Sunday morning and most Sunday mornings. And so I wonder, do you know, being in church every week is a dangerous place to be? Why? Well, there's an old hymn that says, Come, you sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. And then it goes on, and it says, All the fitness he requires to come, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And so gospel muscles, fitness, gospel muscles, gospel strength, gospel muscles are weakness and need. And the danger for people like the religious leaders, like this boy, like you and me, is that if you're a pretty good person, then it's hard to feel your need for Jesus. But you see, the two brothers in the story are very much the same. They both believe that the way to their father's love is to be good and not to be bad. In theological terms, they believe in works righteousness, not grace. So let's see this. The younger brother comes home, as we saw last week, not expecting to be showered with love, but hoping for a chance to become a hired hand in order to pay back what he has wasted. So in his mind, the only shot he has of ever being accepted back into the family is to do enough good that it might somehow outweigh the bad that he's done and things might even out. The older son, the older son is very much the same, except he stays home, not because he genuinely loves the father, but because he thinks that if he works hard enough, long enough, good enough, It will earn him the life that he wants. They are the same. The younger hopes to become a servant, not a son. He says, make me a slave. Make me a servant. The younger hopes to become a servant, but the older already is one. He says to the father, look there, verse 29. Look, these many years I've served you. That's a little too soft. These many years I have slaved for you, he says. That's not a son talking. That's a servant. That's a slave. And so both of them think their performance, their work in the father's house for the father is what matters most. And it's keeping them both from feeling accepted and delighted in by their father. And that's what it means to be lost. To not know that you're loved and you're delighted in despite your very worst self. The biblical word 
for this concept I'm trying to describe is the word righteousness, which means rightness with God. Home, which is where we're trying to get in this story, right? Everybody's trying to get home. Home is, the, is rightness with God. It's what we were made for. It's the only place where we find rest and safety and satisfaction and joy. So how can you be right with God? Well, this is the fundamental question every human heart is asking. Even if you don't know your heart's asking it, it's the, it's the fundamental question Christianity answers. It's what Christianity is all about, which is why it's what this story is all about. And, and the, the answer is that you don't get righteousness by being good and not by being bad. That's religion, not Christianity, because the elder brother, look, look here. Both the bad boy and the good boy are lost. The bad boy is lost, not because he's bad. And the, the good boy is not righteous because he's good. They're both lost because they think that being good is what matters with the father. So Spurgeon said, conscience tells every man that if he would be saved, he must get rid of sin. Well, religion says that the way you get rid of sin is through personal moral effort. You stop being bad. You start being good. This is what the younger boy was trying to do and what the older boy had already accomplished. And the result was this idea of self-righteousness, which is what it's our theme this morning. Think about, think about those two words together, self-righteousness. In other words, righteousness that comes from you, righteousness that you do. But that's not Christianity. Christianity says the way to be rid of sin is not some effort of your own, but instead to be clothed in the righteousness of another. You need a righteousness, but it doesn't come from you. It has to come to you from the outside. Luther called it an alien righteousness. And so do you remember the scene of the prodigal's homecoming earlier in this story? He came home in rags. And the father met him on the road and said, quickly, bring the best robe. And he put it on him. The father clothed the son. And that's how you get righteousness. To use the lines from another hymn, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. That's the only way to get the righteousness that you need. self Righteous means you're not looking outside of yourself because you don't need any help. Your goodness is good enough. And that's why moral religious people are in so much danger because they can't feel their spiritual need. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that there are those who will come before Jesus on the day of judgment saying, Lord, did we not do so-and-so, pointing to their own good works, and they think that it will suffice, and it won't. And so the irony of the story, the surprise, is that the younger brother doesn't need to become more like his older brother, as I thought for all those years reading this story. But instead, if anything, the older brother needs to become more like the younger. Now, let me be careful in saying that, because what I don't mean, I don't mean that he should go off and do a little sinning, although it might do him a little good, to be honest. But that's another story for another time. The problem with the older son is not that he doesn't sin. It's that he doesn't see his sin. He doesn't think of himself as a sinner. That's his big problem. And so the advantage that the younger boy has on his brother is that he can say, verse 21, which is not printed for you, but here's what he says when he finally comes face to face with his father. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And is that a true statement? Of course it is. He's blown it big time. And what we learn is that's the first step, getting to that place where you realize that concept, that spiritual truth is the very first step to being welcomed and accepted into the Father's house. Jesus said, 
I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we should read the righteous there in italics. It's the righteous. Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous. In other words, the one who thinks of himself as righteous. And what he means that he didn't mean that the righteous don't need to repent, but sinners do. He means that you can't you can't turn, you can't repent and turn to God until you first think of yourself as a sinner. As long as you think of yourself as righteous, you won't repent. And without repentance, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So the younger son is caught. He has no righteousness left, and that's his advantage. That's a spiritual, not a spiritual liability. It's a spiritual asset for him. This older son, his righteousness, his good works that he's been doing in the father's house all these years is a spiritual liability, and he's a few steps behind. He's just as big a sinner. Really, and he's a, you, know, you could argue he's an even bigger sinner, but he just doesn't know it yet. He doesn't see it yet. And that's what makes... Self-righteousness is so dangerous. So there's a difference between being a Christian and just being religious. Religious people repent of their sins, but then they go on and what they do, the very next thing is they try to establish a righteousness of their own. But you're not a Christian until you repent of your sins and then you also repent of your righteousness. You turn away from sin, But you also turn away from the notion that any good in you is good enough. And you become a Christian when you stop trying to relate to God on the basis of your moral performance. The prophet said all of our righteousness is filthy rags. And that's what the older brother does not believe. And I'm fairly confident of that because of how he reacts to the grace that the father shows to his younger brother. So let's turn to that part of the story and see, secondly, the dynamics. We saw the danger but let's also look at the dynamics. And, and this is really going to be a two-part thing. You're going to have to come back next week for the, the rest of this, just for time's sake. But uh, there's something very wrong with the way the brother responds here. Uh, it's, it's shocking to the system as you read it, really. Particularly as you read it in light of everything in Luke chapter 15. But the father, the father comes at the very end in verse 32 because the son's accused him. The older son's really brought an accusation against him. And so he's... He's somewhat defending himself, and he says, verse 32, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is now alive, and he was lost and is now found. Now, the phrase there means that, that what the father's doing in throwing this party and killing the fattened calf and inviting the whole village to come and celebrate, it's the right thing. It's the right reaction. It's what should have been done in light of this boy's homecoming. Earlier in Luke 15, it says that heaven throws a party when a wayward person repents. That the angels get together and, and party. Because God's heart celebrates when his lost children come home. And so our hearts should too. But this son, he's out of the flow of all of that. He cannot. Instead, when you look there, he's just, you just want to like smack him in the face, don't you? He sulks outside while the party happens in the house. There's something really wrong in his heart. Now, I have a visual aid for us here. So, Andy, I don't know if you, Joe, if you guys have that up there, but um, Rembrandt, uh, this is a famous painting by Rembrandt called The Return of the Prodigal. Henri Nouwen, who I really just really adore his writing, he uh, spent three days at La Hermitage in St. Petersburg, Russia, where this painting is showed. He sat in front of the painting. This is like, I'm kind of introverted and, and somewhat of a mystic myself. And so this just, this, I don't, you'll probably laugh, but this just like warms me inside. He, what he did was he went to this, to this uh, 
place where the painting is, and he sat in front of the painting for three days just with a, a journal and just meditated on the painting and then wrote uh, thoughts about the painting for three days in his journal, and it turned into a wonderful little book called The Return of the Prodigal Son, which is probably, I don't say this often, but of all the books I've read, and I've read quite a few, probably in the top ten books I've, I've read in my life, it's just a really marvelous reflection on this. And one of the things he noticed, and if you see there on the painting, he, he noticed that... Um, it's called the return of the prodigal son, but the return itself is actually not the central event of the painting. It's not situated at the physical center of the canvas. It takes place on the left side uh, where all the light is while the tall, stern elder brother dominates the right side. And you see him there robed in the red robes. And then what, what Nowen said was, and then if you notice in the middle, the middle is made, made up of the distance between the two that there's this profound darkness that exists in between the father embracing the son and the older brother kind of standing very, very tautly over to the right. And he said, because that's the main lesson of this parable. There's something missing in the response of the older brother. It was fitting to celebrate. He should have been there with his arms, you know, wrapped around his brother too, but he was not. It was fitting to celebrate and to embrace him, but he was not fit for it. His self-righteousness has damaged his soul in profound ways. And so we want to dig a little deeper. And I think you can just leave that up. I think that's a powerful image. But I, I think we learn from this text both where self-righteousness like we see here comes from and also how it presents itself, how it reveals itself, or if you want, the, the fruit of it and, or the root of it and the fruit of it. And the question we're asking here is why does he have such a hard time with the Father's grace towards his brother? Why is it so offensive to him? And I asked a question a few weeks ago, do you love that God loves sinners? And we're going to come back to that next week again, actually, because I think it's a profound thing for us to reflect upon. But the clear answer is that this boy does not. He wants, he expects his brother to be punished and not celebrated. And the question we're left pondering is why? What's his problem? What's the big deal here? And I have to warn you, there's an ugly truth that's being revealed in this story that we have to confront in our own lives. And what we see is that the elder brother is upset because he did the right thing and he stayed home. But of course you have to ask the question, why? What was he motivated by? Why did he, why did he stay home and act so differently from his younger brother? Was it because he loved the father? No. Was it out of a sense of duty to the family as the oldest son? No. I mean, the story gives us insight into the, his core motivations. If you look there, verses 29 and 30, and what's printed for you, he says, Look, when the father come, himself comes out to meet him uh, because he won't come into the party, he says to the father, Look, which is a stern word, right? I mean, he's, it's really not a respectful way to address uh, a, a parent or an, or an older person in, in this society or in ours. Look, these many years I've slaved for you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, you killed the fatted calf for him. I mean, talk about sour grapes. And what, and what you want to ask is, well, why, was, why has he been slaving all of these years then? Because, again, because he loved the father? No, he's not doing it for the father. It's very clear he's doing it for himself. He's doing it for the payoff at the end. He doesn't want the father. He wants the father's stuff. Hmm. Just like his younger brother did. See, sin is not just breaking the rules. It's putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge. And there are two ways 
to be your own savior. You can do it by breaking the rules and doing your own thing. Or you can do it by keeping all the rules and trying to control the outcomes by putting God into your debt and getting control over him through your good works instead of relying upon his grace and love. There is an elder brother type person. Uh, and they base their self-image on being moral and hardworking. And their whole approach to life and their way of making sense of the world is that good people deserve to be rewarded and celebrated and bad people deserve to be punished. And, of course, this is what God is like because this is what the world is like. And so we, you know, the, we, we expect God to be like this as well. This is the moral order to their entire universe. But what happens is, is if you live in that moral universe, you inevitably begin to feel morally superior to the people who don't have it all together or who you know, don't live up to your standards. And this is the older brother for sure. And when his younger brother comes home, the younger brother expects to be punished, but the older brother expects him to be punished too. <laughs> and when he comes home, he's not punished. The father runs out and clothes him and calls together the community and throws a party. This boy who deserves to be strung up is celebrated instead and when his brother is celebrated what happens to him is it begins to feel like he's being punished and his whole world starts to collapse he says if you know if this is the way it works then why did i spend all those years working so hard what was it all for what was the point he has to admit to himself he has to admit to himself that all of his hard work was for nothing. It didn't merit him anything because that's not the way it works with the father. He didn't want to be a son. He wanted to be a servant and pay his own way. But the father delights in being a father. The father wants sons. He doesn't want servants. And God, God doesn't want servants. He wants sons. And that's the root. The elder brother has been good. He's worked hard. He's... More deserving than his younger brother, for sure, but he expects all of his hard work to pay off. He's done everything. He's checked off the list. He's, he's obeyed all the rules. He's, he's done everything exactly the way that he should, and he's not getting the outcome that he expected because the bad boy comes home, and he doesn't get what he deserves, which means that the good boy doesn't get what he deserves. Nobody gets what they deserve, and his world begins to crumble. It's too much for him. Which is why we see in verse 28 that his response to all of this is anger. If the, if the root is what I just described, then, then this is the fruit. It was fitting that he celebrate, but instead he's full of jealousy and resentment and self-pity. And he begins to berate the father. He accuses the father of being stingy and unfair. He's just as insulting as his brother was when he asked for the inheritance early. And he distances himself from his brother. Look how he puts it in verse 30. When this son of yours came home. In other words, he's no brother of mine, he says. And so there's a vertical and there's a horizontal dimension to this. When God doesn't come through, the elder brother person gets resentful. And that's how you know if this is really you. When you put in the work. When you live a good life. And you go to church and you do all the things that you're supposed to do and then you don't get the outcome that you think you deserve. How do you respond? Or when other people get what you know they don't deserve but you think you deserve in their place. 
when you've been working in the heat of the day for 12 hours and those who have worked for only one get paid the same amount as you? Do you celebrate with them? Because that's what a gracious heart does. Or do you accuse God of wrongdoing? Do you, do you say, this isn't fair and get full of resentment like the older brother here because God owes you and you're not paying up what's due to me? Well, then you know. And then what happens is, is that resentment starts to affect the way that you treat the people in your life, especially younger brothers. Because you fundamentally aren't relying on grace. Then you'll be slow to show it to others. You'll be exact and you'll live with incredibly high standards for yourself and everybody else. And you'll take yourself too seriously. And there'll be this moral intensity that takes root in your life that just becomes overwhelming to people. Now, we're going to come back to that next week because I think that's so important. But I want to spend a lot more time on, on that. But I want you to see, see, I want you to see both the root and the fruit here. Something's really wrong with this boy's life. This self-righteousness has taken over and it's caused him to become resentful towards uh, his father and to become really, really angry and um, judgmental towards his brother. And that is the picture of the person like the people that I, that I knew, like the person I was so long into my Christian life, moral and dutiful and church-going and good, but mean and condescending and rude. See, the parable ends with the elder brother still outside. Do you notice that? Well, will he come in? Will he come to his senses and come home like his other brother did? Well, we don't know. We're not told, and that's on purpose. It adds a certain level of urgency to the story, especially if you admit your own elder brother tendencies. And so what do we do? How do we, how do we run not just from our sin, but also from this, this soul-destroying self-righteousness that's killing us? And the answer the parable gives is that the only way to really overcome your own elder brother-ishness is to see the true elder brother, and the way that he's loved you. So Tim Keller wrote a book called Prodigal God, which has changed the lives of a number of people I know. And in the book, he makes a point that is really brilliant. And here's where I wish, you know, if you have a Bible, you could look with me. But if you look at Luke 15 as a whole, there are three parables. And, and what Keller says is that really Luke 15 is one parable in three episodes. So you have the parable of the lost sheep up in chapter 15, verses 3 through 7. There's a sheep that becomes lost. And the shepherd, who's in charge of the sheep, leaves the 99 and goes off to find the lost sheep and then returns home rejoicing when he finds the sheep. And then in verse 8, 9, and 10, there's the parable of the lost coin. There's a woman who loses a very valuable coin, and she lights a lamp, and she begins to sweep out the house, seeking, excuse me, diligently for the coin in every corner of the house. And so in each case, as you go along in Luke 15, there's someone, something becomes lost, and the response is that someone goes out and searches diligently for that which was lost. So by the time you get to the third story, particularly if you're a first century Jewish person listening to Jesus tell the story, as the parable of the prodigal son unfolds, and you hear about the plight of this younger brother who has gone off to a distant land and run into a very difficult situation, you expect that someone will set out and search for him. Him. And we know who it should be. But no one does. And that's that's the point. See, Jesus is a master storyteller. And it would have been the elder brother's job to go and search for his younger brother to bring him home. And everybody listening to Jesus' story would have assumed that 
the story would go that way, but it doesn't. He didn't go. And Jesus is making a point in the way he structured this by putting the flawed elder brother in the story. Jesus is inviting us to imagine and to yearn for a true one. Because the elder brother here is not the hero. He's not the savior. He needs saving just as much as the other brother does too. Just as, just as much as anybody does. But see, there is a hero. There is an, an older brother who goes out in search of God's lost children to bring them home at his own expense. There's a story. It's a true story. Uh, told of a young man who was taken captive uh, in Vietnam, in the Vietnam War as a POW. And when the family learned of his capture but uh, couldn't get word through any official channel of his location and whether he was okay or not, his older brother flew to Vietnam and risked his life to search the jungles and the battlefields for his lost brother for months and months and months, climbing through the jungles, going into POW camps, and it's said that despite the danger, he, would ne he was never hurt or captured because uh, the Vietnamese were so moved by his dedication that they left him alone. They just let him wander the country. He came to be known as the brother. We have a brother like that. The commentators point out that the younger brother coming home was at the expense of the older brother because when the younger brother left, the rest of the inheritance would have gone to him. The father divided the property between the two of them, so quite literally all that was left belonged to his older son by right. So for his brother to be forgiven and to be restored to the family, he quite literally had to pay him. Maybe that's why he's so upset. But the point of the story is not that forgiveness comes easy. Sin creates a debt, and that debt must be paid. Either God could make us pay, or he could pay the debt himself. And forgiveness means that God himself pays the debt. And this is exactly what our older brother has done. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the true older brother, was stripped naked that we might be clothed with a dignity and a standing we don't deserve. He was treated as an outcast so that we could be brought into God's family freely by grace. There, Jesus drank the cup of eternal justice so that we might have the cup of the Father's joy. See, here's how you overcome your elder brother-ishness. If you find yourself here in the story, you need to be moved by an understanding of what it costs to bring you home and then to see God's absolute joy in Jesus in doing it. The power to kill self-righteousness comes from knowing, one, how costly you are to love, but then also how willing God was to pay whatever price. You have to see the reality of your sin, which is what this boy couldn't. You have to see the reality of your sin, your rebellion against God, even in all of your goodness, and to feel it so that you can then see the magnitude of God's heart toward you in your sin in the heart of the Father in this story. I asked you a couple weeks ago, I'd ask you again, do you believe? Do you believe that the way the Father treats his sons in this story is the way that God the Father treats you? See, the story ends with the elder brother still outside, sticking to his guns, refusing to come in. Will he? We don't know. We're not told, but that's not really the question. You know what the question is? Will you? That's the question Jesus' story asks. If you see yourself in the elder brother, will you come home? Will you stop trying to earn God's love with your obedience? turning all of the people in your life to rivals for the heart of God as if God's heart is not sufficient for you and everyone else. And rather, as the scripture says, 
Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus, who in his obedience and death and resurrection has won the righteousness that we need. See, the, 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 the reality, the, the, the work before the older brother is to stop work, which is hard to do. But again, in, in the words of an old hymn, here is what the step of faith for him, for those of us who see ourselves in him, look like. As, uh, as the hymnist said, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand in him and him alone, only then, gloriously complete. Amen? Pray with me, would you? So, Father, would we be people who not only have the courage and the strength and the wherewithal and the spiritual IQ to see in the ways that we have just set out in absolute rebellion against you, to know that, that, that it's in those ways that our lives are being torn apart and to turn and to come home expecting, because the story tells us it's true, expecting the kind of reception that the younger brother got, arms wide open, the father running to meet him before he can even get over the hill and clothing him and putting the ring and killing the fatted calf and saying, come, let's celebrate. But would you give us the spiritual IQ and all of our goodness to know that, that in many ways when we set out to be obedient to you, it's not out of a genuine love, but it's out of a desire to be our own Lord and Savior and to control the outcomes of our life by putting you in our debt, by fulfilling whatever obligation we believe is before us so that we can then demand payment for services owed. And it's just as rebellious because what we're wanting is not to give our lives into your hands and to trust in you. No, there's no trust in your heart. We're, we're wanting to, to be uh, in control of our own lives. And it's just as deeply rebellious. But it's just so much harder to diagnose. And so my, my burden is that you would come and that you would break through um, the ways we can deceive ourselves into thinking that just because we're good and not bad must mean that we're in the right place. When in fact, it can mean that we're even further away from our true home. And so give us grace strength and courage not just to repent of our sins but also to repent of our righteousness this morning that we might finally uh, come to know you as, as the God and Father with arms wide open, arms nailed open on a cross to say here's the welcome that I offer to you if we would but come and so give us ears to hear the call to come home and give us feet to start walking one foot in front of the other and then may we come to know the joy of being welcomed and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. That is the confession of a heart that knows that it is not sufficient to meet the demands of God on its own, but that it must look for a righteousness that it cannot achieve by itself. And truly, there is no one like him. Amen. We're not like him. I'm not like him. You're not like him. And yet, uh, on uh, the day of his resurrection, when the women came to the tomb, I love uh, the way he said this to them. Um, he said uh, to the women, he said, I want you to go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. What does he mean? He means that the work that he's accomplished now gives us the right 
to the same kind of relationship and intimacy and access with the Father that he himself has. Isn't that amazing? He is the true older brother. Uh, and when you see him as the true older brother, then, then you won't be able to live as an older brother. You'll enter into the joy of your father, which is, which is what these words mean. So go celebrating the reality that if your faith is in Jesus, uh, then all of these words I'm about to speak over you are true, even in the times when they don't feel like it. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.